I'd like to propose something to you. Let's say, now this is hypothetical, please, please. So don't like watch this video, cut me saying this, and then say this is what identifies Summit Church, okay? But here's what I'd like to do just to get us going. Hypothetically speaking, let's say I experienced something very traumatic in my life. And I have spent year after year searching through the scriptures, trying to make sense of this very tragic event that happened in my life. And I just, there are some things in scripture I just can't marry with my experience. I can't make sense of this. How a God I have believed in for the past 53 years would permit such an awful tragedy to happen in my life. He's sovereign. And I, I have believed for 53 years that my God is sovereign over all things. He knows past, he knows what's happening today, he knows what's happening tomorrow, and he is absolutely ready to deal with whatever is coming tomorrow. Like, I've believed that all my life. And I've also believed all my life because the greatest act of good is that God himself would send his son to die on the cross to save me from my sin so that I could be in forever eternal relationship with him. So I believe he's good. So I have my belief that God knows and is prepared for tomorrow. He's gone before me into tomorrow. I know that God is good but yet I have this tragic event that happened in my life that was not good. It wasn't good. So I'm, I've been wrestling over this, well, what do I do with this? Either I'm con- I need to conclude that God is not ultimately good because a good God doesn't let awful things like this happen, right? How, he can't, he's good. He, come, he came to bring good, not cause it or permit it to happen. So I'm wrestling over whether or not God is actually good. Okay, but maybe he's really not all-knowing. Maybe he's not omniscient. Maybe he doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so this is what I've concluded, church. God is good. I believe that. And so therefore... I must accept the truth that God doesn't know tomorrow, so he's not omniscient. So let's suppose that that's real, all right? Let's suppose you're sitting around the lunch table today and your son or daughter comes from kids ministry and says, hey, guess what I learned today? I learned that God has given us the most tremendous pleasure of him using us to fashion what his tomorrow is going to look like. That's really clever, isn't it? That is really clever of whatever teacher would say to your child, he is using you to determine what his tomorrow would look like. He doesn't know what's going to happen, but he's making it be what he wants it to be through you. Let's say your son or daughter comes home from youth group and that same message is being declared. All right? What are you going to do about it? Would you know what to do about it? Would you have 
the confidence and your understanding of what this has to say in cooperation with the Holy Spirit of God, would you have any idea what to do about it? Would you have the spiritual fortitude to actually address that very thing? I have watched and read accounts of individuals, moms, who are throwing themselves in front of a Bengal tiger to save their 18-month-old child from being devoured by this animal. I have read accounts of servicemen throwing themselves on a grenade to save the rest of their team. I know of accounts of men giving their brothers kidneys to save their life. I watched and have been watching my father walk in a very scary place alongside my mom as they battle her cancer together. Frightening things, hard things, all with the intention of extending life here on earth. And they are the most noble and wonderful and sacrificial experience or or acts that someone can, can do for another. But why? Why is it that we're so concerned with extending life? Here's what I want you to receive today. Today's message is number one for the church. It's for you and me. It's for brothers and sisters in Christ. It's for the one that says, Jesus is Lord of my life. So this is for us. It's how we speak to one another when things like I just shared, those hypotheticals, leak into the church, and they do. So pray for your elders as we are aware of things like that that will tend to leak into the church. But why would we want to extend life? This is an eternal message today that has everything to do with stepping between unsound teaching and those that would hear it, bringing a strong and a sharp rebuke to the one that is bringing it because this is an eternal matter. I am afraid to step in front of a Bengal tiger. Yes, I am. But am I afraid to rebuke the one who is teaching my family, my children, my church unsound doctrine? Am I ready? Am I willing to do what God says? And that is rebuke. That's a hard word, isn't it? Rebuke. How far are you willing to go in order to participate in the salvation of someone's soul? One of our, if you're some at church, you know one of our pillars is personal evangelism, personal evangelism, and it comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and this is what it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Sometimes it's quite a scary prospect to think that God might be calling me to share the gospel message with someone really close to me. That's the beginning of it. Why are we afraid of that? Why are we afraid to confront someone with the sin in their life and saying, I know someone who dealt with your sin, receive him as Lord of your life. Why are we so afraid of that? Here's something else that's very frightening. And I would say this falls underneath our spiritual growth pillar. Our spiritual growth pillar says this, Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul says, him we proclaim doing this, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. It's a frightening thing to think about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone. I still can't make sense of why that's such a frightening thing for us, but it is. 
And it's a frightening thing to be one that warns, that rebukes the brother in Christ, the sister in Christ, when we see, when we see him teaching, living in such a way that is contrary to what the Bible would have to say. That example I provided for you at the head of the sermon is um, it's an actual account that happened. We'll talk maybe about that in just a little bit. Those kind of things are real today and have the full potential to make their way in the church. And we, church, must be ready to rebuke. We must be ready to rebuke so that those we rebuke would be sound in their faith and that we are protecting the church itself. Calibrated, a church ready to rebuke. Rebuke is a hard word, isn't it? It's a hard word, but understand this, the heart behind any rebuke is this. Whether the rebuke is done, um, whether it's done with, with great care or not, the intention of a rebuke It's a hard word, isn't it? It's even hard for me to continue to say rebuke. The intention behind rebuke is this. It is restoration and protection. That's why we rebuke, to restore and to protect. So I want to present with you your big question that you must keep in the forefront of your minds throughout the next 25 minutes and probably should be on into the day. Why wouldn't you rebuke? If you saw something, if you heard something like I just shared at the front of the sermon, why wouldn't you personally do it? The Apostle Paul addresses that for us in today's passage. He tells us what we're supposed to do. He tells us what we're supposed to be looking at or looking for. There are those in the church that will be living lives of hypocrisy. They'll be speaking one thing and they'll be doing another. He wants you to watch out for them and he wants you to rebuke them for the sake of their soul. And there are the ones that will come into the church that won't just simply be living lives of hypocrisy, saying one thing, doing another, but they will be teaching unsound doctrine, leading people astray. And then he tells us what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to rebuke them and to do it sharply. So if you would now turn to Titus chapter one, we wanna read this passage together. Titus one, verses 12 to 16, we're finishing chapter one. And as you're turning, thank you so much for your prayers over my family. Thanks to Jasper for filling in for me two weeks ago. Um, that was to be my sermon, but a, uh, an urgent call home said that I needed to go home. So I greatly, church, appreciate your prayers over my family. Thank you. Titus chapter one, verses 12 to 16. This is what Paul says. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people who turn away from the truth To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, 
unfit for any good work. In verse 12, this is what we see. A description by a Cretan himself, a man who has lived on the island of Crete, saying, this is what the people of Crete look like. This is what they sound like. They are, they are liars. They are evil beasts. They are lazy gluttons. And the Apostle Paul, having been there, says that is absolutely true of this culture on the island of Crete. Sounds like a really wonderful place to live, doesn't it? But it's where he's called Titus to go. He says, look, this is what you're going to see in this culture, but understand this, what you see in the culture of Crete has worked its way into the church. And this is what I have for you to address, to address, and this is what you need to be looking for. You need to be listening for the liars. You need to be looking for the evil beasts. Evil beasts is kind of a coverall for anyone who's living a debaucherous life in contrary to what the scriptures would have to say. And lazy gluttons. This is what you need to be looking for, but he goes on. There are two types of things in particular, Titus, I want you to be looking for and watching for. These are the two problems that exist, and then he offers the one solution. I want you to be looking for hypocrisy, listening for hypocrisy, and I want you to be looking for and listening for heresy. Hypocrisy is this, the hypocrite, the one who makes a profession with his mouth, I believe in God, and yet their lives are contrary to the very thing they are preaching. You know, we hear about that. We hear that a lot about the church today. Hey, why did you stop going to church? Because the church is full of hypocrites. And you know what we have to do? We have to raise our hand and say, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I just made a confession this morning to Wendy yesterday. I did not have a good attitude. And as your pastor, I stand in front of you and I say this, look, we must be patient. We must be slow to anger. We must be selfless. And yesterday I felt like it was a day where it was full of impatience and selfishness. And so I'm like, oh God, thank you for the conviction that you pour into my heart that lets me see and know that they are things that cannot identify my life. So yes, the church is full of hypocrites, but are those hypocrites saved and convicted by the Holy Spirit of God? But Paul is saying, look, this is what you're going to see. The people, verse 16, that profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So it's not someone that has the struggle with whatever this, this lazy, gluttonous lifestyle would present. It's not the one that recognizes and confesses and repents and goes after living a life apart from that. This is talking about the individuals that profess to know God, yet they have no interest in doing the things of the way of God. They continue on down their own road of selfishness and self-service. I want you to look out for these. What do they look like? Look at verse 12. They are liars. They are evil beasts. They are lazy gluttons. Look at verse 15. They are defiled. They are unbelieving with minds that are and consciences are defiled. They have given themselves up to serving themselves for so long that they no longer have a conscience 
and minds that are willing to accept that what they're doing is wrong. Read Romans chapter one. It is the clearest description of the one whose mind and whose conscience has been seared and they no longer feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. They have involved themselves over and over and over in this sinful lifestyle that it no longer feels badly to them. They're defiled. They're unbelieving with mind and conscience that has been defiled. Verse 16 says that these people are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Hypocrisy, professing to know God, but living like they don't. The word detestable there in verse 16 means this. It is absolutely horrifying to God. This is what you need to be looking for. Two problems, hypocrisy, the hypocrite, the one that declares, I know God, but lives for himself only. Here's the second thing, heresy, looking for and listening for the heretic. This is, what that, this is a fancy word, a fancy biblical word that simply means this. It's a belief or an opinion that is contrary to sound doctrine. So, If they're teaching something that does not line up with the scripture, with the word of God, that is heresy. God is not all-knowing, but he's good. That's heresy. If I were declaring that message to you, that would make me a heretic. You know what? God is sovereign, but he is not good because he lets these things happen. That is heresy because God is sovereign, he is all-knowing, and he is good. Heretics, verse 14 says, they are ones that devote themselves to Jewish myths and to the commands of people and who turn away from the truth. So you have the truth on one hand, and you have these Jewish myths. This is the, this is the church on Crete, by the way. Keep that in mind. Because I know right now you're thinking about us. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Ones that take the truth, they set it aside, they turn themselves over to their own self-created myths and the commands of, of themselves, their own people, and these are the things they follow setting this aside. I'm not sure what, and there's, there's, there's debate, controversy about what the Jewish myths were. Jasper addressed probably what one of those would be last week, that you must be circumcised. And Jesus makes it clear that that doesn't matter. How about this one? Um, Jesus plus works equals salvation. You must accept the truth of the cross and you must live this way in order to be saved. Coming around to that one, because guess what? Your elders at this church 12, 14 years ago, dealt with that very thing in this church. Someone was teaching that, yeah, I believe in the cross of Jesus Christ. I believe that it is necessary to be saved through the cross of Jesus Christ. But I also believe that that leads to, there are these certain things that you must do. And if you don't do those, you're not saved. So Jesus plus right works equals salvation. We face that. Jewish myths. We don't know what the Jewish myths were that they were struggling with back in, uh, on the island of Crete, but they also were devoting themselves to the commands of people. Now, once again, the commands of people, here we are some 2,000 years, and we can suppose what those commands were, but maybe, maybe, key word, 
If you look at who they were, evil beasts, liars, lazy gluttons, consciences and minds seared, they couldn't even understand what the truth is. Well, then I would suppose maybe the commands of people would go something like this. If you give to me for God and you do it in faith, then he will bless you with wealth. Heard about that one last week, didn't you? Teaching for selfish gain. You know what? I have learned that I can trust my gut or my feelings no matter what the situation. So over here, if it, you know what? If, it, if going that way and my feelings determine for me that that's the right way to go, even if scripture says this way, you know what? We'll make sense of it later. I feel like this is the right way, so this is what I'm going, this must be my destiny because this is the way I feel. You know what? I prayed over and over and over again, God, remove this feeling from me. If it's not what you have for me, remove this feeling from, from, from me and I won't go that way. All right, so after years of praying and you haven't removed it from me, I suppose I'm gonna go this way. Maybe that's what they dealt with on the island of Crete. Maybe, you know what, my marriage is not what I expected to be, to be. My husband or my wife is not doing what he or she is supposed to be doing. I believe that God has determined for me that I am not to live as a slave to that. He has freed me from that, so I'm gonna go my own way. Maybe they were dealing with stuff like that. How about this one? I want you to think about the things that are pressing against our church today. Jasper talked about one last week. I'm gonna mention one. Maybe the Cretan church was dealing with this. I, like a man, and God has not removed that feeling from me, that desire for me to be with a man, and I've prayed about it, and I have justified it in Scripture, and so he must be okay with me to live that kind of lifestyle. So here I go. Maybe that's what they dealt with in the island of Crete. But here's what I know. Right now in your head, you're having a hard time thinking about what maybe they were living, what the church was up against 2,000 years ago on the island of Crete because you're starting to think, Oh my goodness, this sounds like what is happening here. We, the Cretans had this culture that was leaking into the church. The church lives in this American culture. We are called to be separate, to stand out, to abide by the word of God. And we have these things in our culture that are pressing against the church, that are demanding that we live by those rules, myths, and commands of people. It's easy to think, well, potentially they were dealing with it, but now we're starting to think, oh my goodness, these are the things that we see pressing against our church. Had a discussion with Reed, my son, last night. Had a discussion with a group of men yesterday morning about this very thing. Listen, you see it happening. You see it happening in the church today. And, and what we're tempted to say when you consider what's happening in this denomination and this denomination, here's what we're tempted to say. It is splitting the church. I don't think so. 
I think it is revealing the church. Revealing the church. The church is revealed by the ones that are willing to deal with heresy, unsound doctrine, and to take care of the hypocrite. Willing to use the word of God. We are not the judges. We let the word of God do the judging for us. And we respond based on what the word of God has to say to what they're teaching and how they're living. And we bring a rebuke. Paul says, watch out for these. Watch out for hypocrisy. The people that say I'm living this way or or say I believe this and they're living this way, watch out for them. Look out for the heretic, the one that, that is teaching anything that contradicts the word of God. And he says, this is what you're supposed to do. Look out for those two and this is what you're supposed to do. Here's Paul's solution. Look at verse 13. Rebuke them sharply. So what is rebuke? Let's make sure we understand what that is. Rebuke simply means to express sharp disapproval. It's to offer a hard word when absolutely necessary. Remembering always that the heart behind the rebuke is restoration and protection. How am I supposed to do that? Paul says you need to do it sharply. Well, that doesn't sound very nice, does it? To confront someone, to confront someone on their sin, their unsound teaching, you are wrong. That's hard. Let me ask you this. This is a fun question. Which would you rather? Would you rather be rebuked or would you rather rebuke? Almost everyone says, I would rather be rebuked. There are some that say, "Uh uh-uh, I'd rather do the rebuking because they can't take when someone points out where they're wrong. But the vast majority of people that I ask say, I would rather be the one that's rebuked because the heart of the person is, I don't want to hurt you. But Paul is saying here, rebuke and to do it sharply is necessary necessary. Why? Look at verse 13, that they may be sound in the faith. That's why we rebuke. Number one, that, that, that they may be sound in the faith. Now, here's, here's what this means. It doesn't necessarily mean the experience of salvation relationship with Jesus Christ. However, that has to happen first if your doctrine is going to be sound. So, Rebuke them so that they would be sound in the faith really ultimately means this, that they're sound in what they're teaching, which means they're sound in what they believe, which means they're sound in their relationship with Christ, which means it has to begin with salvation. And salvation determines what you believe as he gives you the Holy Spirit of God. And as the Holy Spirit of God starts to work in you, your doctrine becomes more sound and you start teaching the right things. the salvation of the person, and it's also protection of the flock. Go back to verse 11 from Jasper's passage last, last week. These kind of people are upsetting whole families. They're upsetting whole families. We have to go after this. We have to protect our family. Suppose again that that actual thing happened on a Sunday morning. A pastor said, like I did at the beginning of the sermon, I laid out the scenario for you, and actually it was true. We must 
Be concerned with the soul of the individual, what they're teaching, and how we are protecting the flock. This is a big deal to me. I sure hope it is to you. I mean, think about it. What if you decided, oh, I can't deal with that. I'm going to give a call to an elder. Men, do not wait on an elder. Be ready yourself to protect your family from wrong teaching. Let me throw a few questions at you, Summit. We're winding this to a a few thoughts here at the end. Remember that example I provided you at the beginning and also um, the one where Christ plus works equals salvation. So the teaching that God doesn't know the future, but he is good. That's something that Wendy and I in particular had dealt with when we were first married. And of course, if you know our testimony, it kind of tweaks the ear to think, wait a minute, Dave died in the line of duty and left a wife with three little boys, come on. How can that be good? It's my wife being hit by a tractor trailer. Come on, how can that be good? Wrestling. Praise God that he didn't let us go with that kind of believing. Christ plus works equals salvation. Guess what? It happened in our church. Guess where? At the elder level. Can you believe that? We had an elder that was saying, look, hey, you know what we're doing? My wife and I, we're, you know, we're taking Saturday. We're just not doing anything. We're not going to the grocery store. We're just staying at home. Oh, how wonderfully restful it is. You know, we have to practice this on this day, and therefore we have to worship on this day. And it all sounded so flowery and wonderful. Well, good for you, good for you. And then we find out that they are teaching people in our church that you must do these things in order to be saved. Yes, Christ on the cross, but you must do these things. Be at peace, your elders dealt with it. And we always will. Why? Why wouldn't you rebuke? Here's some things I've heard. Well, I already addressed one. You know what? I'm going to wait on an elder to do it. Guys, this teaching could be in your house and upsetting your whole household. Why would you wait on an elder to do it? Here are things, something else I've heard. This will disrupt peace and sever relationship. It's actually not a loving thing to do is to rebuke someone. Who am I to judge? I'm not judging them. Why would I judge them? I have my own stuff. Remember yesterday? Who am I to say he's wrong, she's wrong? These are reasons why people have given me not to rebuke. The Holy Spirit of God through the pen of Paul to Titus, to you and me, says we cannot wait. We must rebuke and we must do it sharply. How would you know false teaching if you heard it. Okay? So what if that was presented to you? You know what? Open theism. God doesn't know the future. Just end right there. How would you know that that is a false teaching? Where would you turn in scripture? 
is things that we need to be prepared for. I would turn to Psalm 139 in the middle of that terrible tragedy that I was just telling you about. All the days ordained for me were written in his book before one of them came to be. Case closed. He knows the future. He is good. He is ready to deal with my tomorrow. Praise God. How would you address it if someone said, you need to do this beyond salvation in order to be saved? These are things for us to wrestle over, and these are just two. How would you know false teaching if you heard it? How would you prepare yourselves? How would you prepare yourself to be ready for the very things that may come, that will come? I would say this. A church that is calibrated is ready to rebuke. A church that is calibrated is calibrated by time spent in the word of God. So that when you hear something, you can at least say, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. I don't know how to address it right now, but I know that's not right. Calibrated because you've spent enough time in the word to know that when something like that comes across, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be, I know how to deal with it. I know it's not right. I know it's not right, but I don't know where to find it. It's just not right. Because you've heard it. You've read it over and over and over again. How about this? You got to simply pray, spend time in the word, pray that God would give you a sensitivity by his Holy Spirit to be twisted up by an unsound teaching. Let me give you one. Write down Philippians chapter one. Philippians chapter one. If you want a prayer to pray, I prayed this over my family for an entire year. And by the way, if you're struggling to memorize those five verses that we're, that we're memorizing, do this. Pray it every day for the next three months over your family, and I promise you'll have it memorized. Uh, Philippians chapter one. Pray this over your family. Verses nine through 11. And this is my prayer. Actually, we're just gonna stop at like nine and 10. And this is my prayer, that your love would abound more and more with what? With knowledge the Bible, and all discernment so that you would know, so that you would hear and sense and know that this is wrong. Knowledge and all discernment so that you would be able to approve what is excellent, what is right. Pray that prayer, spend time in the word, train yourself to see and to know. This is what the truth has to say about that and then pray that the Holy Spirit through his love in you, would give you such an incredible discernment that you would know the difference between right and wrong when it's presented to you. What are the things that get in the way of your prayer life and your time in the word? What would you do if blatant sin, the blatant sin of hypocrisy was tolerated in this church? What would you do? I would give you full permission to confront the elders and if they didn't do anything about it, leave. What would you do if blatant sin, the blatant sin of hypocrisy was tolerated in this church? What would you do if heresy or false teaching was not addressed? We've had to do that from time to time here, but please understand this. Your elders are very, very serious, and I hope that you see it week after week after week. We are committed to what the Word of God has to say, being our direction for how we live and what we do. Here's what's at stake. 
What if we don't listen? What if we, you know what? You know what? I don't want to sever a relationship. It doesn't feel loving. It is loving. We don't have time to talk about why it's loving. The Bible says it's loving. All right? Here's, well, let me just, here's why it's loving. Because this is an eternal matter. I am more concerned with the eternal destination for that person than I am my relationship with them. What's at stake is eternity. It's an eternal matter. Souls are at stake. Eternal destination over relational, maintaining the relationship. If you want to turn to Revelation chapter 2, real quickly as we wrap this up. Eternity is at stake for the person that you are confronting. Eternity is at stake for those that are receiving their unsound teaching. And ultimately, if some church doesn't rebuke sharply, as Paul says, we permit these kind of things to come into our church, we stand to face judgment before our God. Listen to Revelation chapter 2, what he says to the church of Thyatira. Starting at verse 18, sorry, all of a sudden things got smaller. Verse 19, Jesus says, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. So he's celebrating many wonderful things that are happening in the life of this church. But then verse 20, this is where he brings his rebuke and it is sharp. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess She's making a proclamation that this is who she is and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. I rebuked her. I rebuked this church. Gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And so therefore, verse 22, behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. That's what's at stake. And I don't know about you, but the sickbed doesn't sound like a fun place to be. You know, when we worship this morning, That was actually fun. That's what I look forward to in all of eternity. And I want the most people I know that God brings into relationship with me to understand how fun it is and rewarding it is to be in relationship with God. Judgment is not fun. And it's my hope and prayer that we all avoid it. We receive the rebuke we're willing to give the rebuke. Calibrated church, we must be ready to rebuke. We must be ready to receive it. This is an eternal matter. The salvation of those who God has brought into your life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you now. And uh, Lord, I, I admit it is a scary thing to rebuke. Thank you, Lord, for those in my life who rebuked me. Thank you, Lord, for those in my life who showed me what it meant and what it means to rebuke and how to do it. Thank you for those examples, Lord. May Summit Church take seriously the purity of your church, a willingness to rebuke, and to see you glorified in our church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.